The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Exodus 20, beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor the animals or the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So we come tonight in our study of the Ten Commandments to the Sixth Commandment. Translated in the NIV, you shall not murder. I think it's a good translation. Now, murder is a shocking sin. Lead stories in the local news uh, frequently uh, have to do with murder. Two nights ago, I didn't watch it, but O.J. Simpson was in an interview trying to rescue his image. Um, I suppose that was his motive. I don't know for sure. But who can forget the scene, rather chilling, of him trying to uh, try on the murder gloves and that they didn't fit. Everybody has an opinion, and I remember that trial. And the reason was because of the incredible significance of the crime. And the crime itself is significant because human life is significant. It's a significant issue. Nowadays, there is another trial out in San Francisco concerning Scott Peterson, whether he murdered his pregnant wife and disposed or sought to dispose of her body in the San Francisco Bay. This seizes our attention, and it's a a gripping issue and a shocking one as well. Television crime dramas uh, focus on this more than any other sin, more than any other issue. Proliferation of police and private investigator uh, programs, lawyer and judge programs, and forensic specialist programs, they all uh, tend to center, it seems, around the issue of murder. And uh, also, uh, in the literary world, you've had murder writers uh, from Arthur Conan Doyle with Sherlock Holmes all the way up to Agatha Christie and everything in between. The reason that this is an immensely significant issue is because within our hearts, God has written his law, and on that 
uh, is the significance of human life, the death of a human being at the hand of another, something that cannot be observed or something that cannot be uh, denied the significance. Nowadays, we see more and more the hardness of human heart, specifically concerning the issue of murder. I was watching a documentary recently on gangs. Gangs are a problem right here in our city. In some of these gangs, they force the individuals who want to join the gang to commit cold-blooded murder um, simply to prove their worth. And so they'll just hunt down some individual they don't even know uh, and kill them. And sometimes these murders are in 24-hour stores and are caught on on surveillance cameras. And the coldness uh, is what strikes me more than anything. The D.C. sniper for a long time held the nation in thrall while uh, we wondered about who would be the next victim. Just somebody coming out of a Home Depot, perhaps, or at a gas station. Turned out that the man had transformed the trunk of his car and had had a sniper rifle in there and was able to um, kill people at random. Again, the coldness of the heart of an individual who would do this kind of thing. The 20th century really was a century of murder in which uh, one regime after another uh, reduced even such issues as genocide to uh, scientific and economical machine work, like the Nazis, Heinrich Himmler, thinking of the final solution, the ways to dispose of over six million Jews and others as well, what they considered to be subhuman or uh, uh, gypsies or Eastern Europeans and willing to just dispense in a very cold way with uh, other human beings. Joseph Stalin and his gulag system, the concentration camps, uh, willing to murder uh, countless millions of people. Same thing in China under Mao Zedong. Uh, My family and I have been reading over a period of time a a missionary biography of John Patton. And John Patton was a missionary in the the Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific uh, to a bunch of cannibals. And again, the coldness of heart of these individuals as they would boast and brag over people that they had, that they, that they had murdered. Uh, again, a measure of how far an individual has gotten from God when they're able to laugh or to boast about murder. Now, as we look at this commandment, there, are more than one, there is one, more than one way to translate it. When I said that the NIV is a good translation, uh, I think you'll understand what I mean. And King James says, you shall not kill. And I'm going to make a distinction tonight between killing and murder. I think it's a biblical distinction that should be made. I think what is specifically prohibited here is for a human being on his or her own to take it upon themselves and end the life of another without any directive from God, without any command from God. I think that's what the command has in mind. It is a timeless moral prohibition. Now, Luther does well to turn it around and make it a positive command Uh, of love ultimately, but it really isn't. It's essentially a negative command and only goes so far as it goes. Jesus' summary of the two tables of law go the other way, the opposite way, a positive command. The negative prohibition says, you shall not murder. And that's all it says. But Jesus sums up all the law and the prophets in the two great commands. The second commandment is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, it says in Romans 13, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. But love goes beyond this negative prohibition. It's just simply you shall not murder. Now we're going to talk more about it as Jesus went deep into the heart to see the origin of murder. But that's what it is, a prohibition. Now murder is a direct attack on the image of God. A direct attack on the image of God. The root of this command is the worth of a human being. We are created in the image of God. In Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, it says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, 
By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So you can see the connection there between the issue of murder and the image of God. Murder is an attack directly on God. It's an attack on the image of God. And that's why it's so significant. It says in James 3, 9 and 10, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness or image. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Well, the ultimate curse you can do to another individual is to take their life, to kill them. And so therefore, this is a direct attack on an individual who has been made in the likeness or the image of God. It says also in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so there's a direct connection between this issue of love and how we are uh, toward God. Now, the extent of the prohibition is unspecified. It doesn't say who we have in mind. It really is scripture unfolding that helps us to know how comprehensive this is. All it says is, you shall not murder. But whom does it refer to? Well, basically, it refers to any human being at any stage of life. Any human being at any stage of life is sacred to God and therefore must not be murdered. The murder of an infant is no less significant to God than the murder of a fully developed human being. The murder of a simple poor peasant with almost no giftedness or resources is as heinous to God as the murder of an inventor or a CEO or even a king. The murder of a senile woman in her 90s is no less heinous to God than her murder would have been in the bloom of her life. It's all the same to God because it's an attack on the image of God. At the root is what we call the sanctity of human life. The word sanctity means the sacredness of human life. It's set apart unto God as sacred and special and unique, different than other life, different than an animal. Jesus said, you are worth more than many sparrows. Of how much more valuable, of how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? So we're at a higher level than an animal. So the sanctity of human life means the holiness or the sacredness unto God, specifically because we are made in his image. Hence, the Christian church has ruled out such things as euthanasia. Uh, The word euthanasia literally means good death. Oh, there is no such thing as good death in God's mind. It's an attack on the image of God. Abortion, certainly, an attack on the image of God, as we say every year at the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Infanticide which has been practiced in lieu of abortion for thousands of years. Baby is born and then just left to die. That's all. And uh, some forms of embryo research, research any, anything that would cause a human being to die, to lose its life. It's an attack on the image of God. These things are ruled out. Anything that willfully takes a human life, prohibited by this command. Now, biblically, as we look at it, what is the origin? What is the origin of murder? Well, in John chapter 8, take a minute and look there in your Bibles if you would. In John chapter 8 and verse 44, we see Jesus dealing with his enemies. Now, Jesus' enemies are a murderous lot. They are conspiring, they're meeting together and planning to take his life. They want to kill him. Jesus openly exposes this at several times, at several points. He says, you are trying to kill me, a man who's told you the truth from God. So they're plotting to murder him. 
Jesus exposes this and he links it to their own spiritual nature. But in doing so, he brings us right to the origin of murder itself. In John chapter 8 and verse 44, it says, Jesus is Jesus speaking to his enemies. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus there zeroes in on Satan as the origin or the originator of murder. And he's the originator of their own murderous intent toward him. So not only was he a murderer from the beginning, but he's been a murderer all along. And if you understand murder as an attack on the image of God, you can see why this would make sense. Satan hates God, and he can't get at God. You know how he's frustrated that he can't get at Job? You put a hedge of protection around him and around everything he has? Well, how much more true is that of God himself? Satan can't ascend the heights. He can't go up to Mount Zion to where God lives in the sublime regions. He can't reach God. And so he can't attack him directly. So he's a murderer. He wants to attack the image of God when he can and where he can. He was a murderer from the beginning because of his hatred for God himself. He wanted to attack what God loved. And that was the human race. So he's a murderer from the beginning. Satan was the original murderer. Now, how did Satan commit murder? Well, by lying. And that's why Jesus links it to lies. He is the father of lies. And he was a liar from the beginning. How did he murder Well, it says in Genesis 3, 4, and 5, you shall not surely die. There it is. There's the weapon of murder. You want to say, what's the murder weapon? Well, there it was. It was a lie. You shall not surely die. It was a deception and a temptation as he's speaking to Eve at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And you know what happened. You know the rest. Eve was tempted. She gave the fruit to her husband. He ate. And it says in Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. And then Paul goes on from there in Romans 5. In this one sin came the death of the entire human race. It's the greatest genocide that's ever been committed. And Satan did it. And he knew full well what he was doing it. Because he knew the death penalty had been associated with this sin. And so in, in luring and enticing the human race into sin, he was murdering the human race. And so he's the greatest murderer in history. For really, all human death can rightly be laid at his vile feet. It's his fault. Uh, and he must take credit for it. More than that, as I've said, Satan has incited countless men to follow his ways, just as Jesus spoke to the Jews who were plotting him. He said, plotting to kill him. It says in John 8:44, "You are of your father the devil, and your will is to carry out or to do your father's desires." So there, the devil is inciting and and prompting these evil people to kill Jesus. He's a murderer. More on that later. I think it's so interesting how God used Satan's own nature against him to destroy his kingdom. Isn't that marvelous? How God used murder to save your souls. I think that's incredible. The story has a happy ending. We'll get to that in a minute. Here are Jesus' enemies wanting to carry out their father's desire. 
And so, everything from the gangland murders to the cold, calculating murder uh, of a, of a uh, white-collar criminal who wants to remove his wife from the scene to uh, everything in between, it was the devil behind inciting, moving somebody to do the murder. Cain is the first example of this, carrying out his father's desires. Look at Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4, 3 through 12. In Genesis 4, 3, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry. That's a key statement there, isn't it? Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Really, it's Satan that's crouching at the door. Satan the murderer. He wants to commit the first murder through Cain. And he's inciting him. And one can only imagine what kind of thoughts ran through Cain's mind between this moment and the fateful moment. What kind of anger, what kind of jealousy, what kind of envy, what kind of dark thoughts running through his mind. In verse 8, now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the fields. By this time, Cain had worked out what he was going to do. He had already plotted, he'd figured it out. What a horrible moment in human history. Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother? Now, what follows is fascinating to me. I've often asked my kids, do you know what the first lie is in the Bible told by a human being? They said, no. Well, it's right here. What is it? What's the first lie told by a human being? We already got to the first lie at all. That was Satan's lie. You shall not surely die is the first lie in the Bible. What's the first human lie in the Bible? The answer is, I don't know. That's the first lie right there. You can circle it with a red pen. I, I bring this up to my children because it's one of their favorite answers in the world. I hear it countless times. And sometimes I'm not so sure that they don't know. And so I just wanted them to know just, just biblical history that just for their edification. The first human lie in the Bible is this one right here. I don't know. There it is. He knew very well where Abel was. He knew why Abel was where he was. He knew the whole story. He lied to God. And you can't lie to God. God knows everything. I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? What have you done? Listen, he said, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You know what it cries out to? It cries out for vengeance. It cries out for vengeance. And this is a theme all the way through the end of the Bible when, when the martyrs are crying out under the under the uh, altar and before the throne. How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you avenge our blood? How long? Your, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your blood, brother's blood from your hand. When you work the earth, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a wet, restless wanderer on the earth. And since then, there have been countless murders. This was the first one. Uh, And it began with Cain and his anger, his hatred for his brother. Now, there's a special category or a special kind of murder in Scripture. 
And it is the attack of the wicked on the righteous because they're righteous. It's a major theme in the Bible, and this murder is of that category. It becomes a theme that leads all the way to the cross. All the way to the cross. But it's a special theme, the attack of the wicked on the righteous. 1 John 3.12 refers to this. It says, Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. That's why. He killed him because he was jealous, because he hated righteousness, just like the devil. And so an attack of the wicked on the righteous is a special category of murder. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 33 through 36, You snakes, you brood of vipers, how long will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. From From the blood of righteous Abel, he was the first, to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered, Between the temple and the altar, I tell you the truth, all this will come down on this generation. Jesus is speaking there specifically of a kind of category of murder. And that is the attack of the wicked on the righteous specifically because they're righteous. A subset of that is the way that the Jews treated the prophets one after the other. Whenever the prophets came, they sought to murder the prophet or at least to hurt or harm them in some way. There was always some kind of an attack and perhaps even attempted murder or even accomplished murder uh, on the prophet. And so this is even more so in a redoubled sort of way, an attack on God himself. Do you see it? The murder itself is an attack because the human being is created in the image of God. But how much more when, when the human being is a messenger coming with the word of God and the answer is murder? It's a special subset of the murder. Now, the individual origin of murder for a specific person is a heart of anger. We've already had this looked at, but uh, turn, if you would, to Matthew 5, 21 through 26. Murder is a heart issue. It comes from the heart. It proceeds from the heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. So murder, if we can just take all the other sins that are listed there out, you could just summarize this. Matthew 15, 19 says, For out of the heart comes murder. That's where it comes from. It's a heart issue. It starts inside. Frankly, it must, because other than that, it's what we call manslaughter, accidental death, or something like that. But it's not murder. And it's not what the Sixth Command has in mind. And there was special provision made for the accidental killing of another human being, which I've always found interesting. But God, in effect, said, I'm not necessarily always going to prevent the axe head from flying off the axe handle and killing the neighbor. And when it happens... You have a city of refuge you can flee to, so the avenger of blood will not kill you. And so in in his law, in God's law, he makes provision for accidental killings. But that's not what's prohibited here. We're We're talking here about something that comes from the heart, and that's the issue. Murder proceeds from the heart. It proceeds from the nature. Cain was angry with with God and with Abel, and at the root of the tree of murder was anger and pride. The fruit... Of that was a crushing blow to, to Abel's head or whatever it is, whatever method he used to murder his brother. Jesus made this clear in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, 
do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. If that doesn't convict you, nothing will. Because you see, just like Isaiah, paraphrasing paraphrasing Isaiah, Woe is me, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of anger, and I live among a people with angry hearts. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. All of us have this murder inside our hearts. We may not ever have lifted our hand to carry it out, but we have the tree, and the fruit is just truncated by fear of the law or by other things, good training and the influence of the Holy Spirit. Praise God for that. But we have that, that nature in our original Adamic nature to be a murderer. Each one of us does. And so Jesus talks about reconciliation. He talks about relationships. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, uh, the officer, and the officer will hand you over to the judge, and you'll be thrown in prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is talking there about broken relationships, human relationships. And he's saying the root of murder is that anger and the broken relationship. That's where it comes from. But that's not the only place it comes from. It comes from other things, too. James said, for example, it comes from wanting something that you can't get. James 4, 1 and 2 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something and don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. So here it is. It's you wanting something and you can't get it. Somebody's in your way. They're stopping you from getting what you want. And so there's not really anger. It's just that somebody's in your way. And so there are CEOs and mafiosos and others that are willing to just remove or rub out people that they have nothing against. They have no anger. It's just business. That's all. And and they're willing to kill in order to accomplish it. There's no anger involved. They just needed to remove the individual so that business could go on. A biblical example of this is 1 Kings 21 with Naboth's vineyard. You remember that story? Ahab laying on his bed, crying and whining, and Jezebel, what a couple they were. Ahab and Jezebel. If ever two people deserved each other, it was those two. But there's Ahab whining and laying in bed. Why? Because he can't have Naboth's vineyard. And it looks so good, and he wants that vineyard. He lusts for it. He's been given so much, but it's not enough. He wants something, and he can't get it. Jezebel says, don't you worry about that. I'll take care of it for you. And so she hires a couple of scoundrels to accuse Naboth falsely. And they rise up and kill him for some crime he didn't commit. How many of the Ten Commandments can we break in one act? But there it is. You shall not covet. You shall not bear false witness. And you shall not murder. All of them together in one act. And Naboth's vineyard is uh, taken over. And so we see actually lots of motives for murder. There are many, many of them, not just anger, but uh, anything that would attack from covering up one's sin. You can murder to cover up your sin. That's what David did to Uriah. He wasn't angry at Uriah. 
but he wanted to cover up his sin, and so he had him murdered for that. Uh, to coveting uh, someone's wife or possessions, to revenge, to prideful and tyrannic, tyrannical abuse of power, like Hitler or Mao Zedong or Joseph Stalin, uh, to personal convenience, to cold-hearted sport, blood sport, and many others. Lots of motives for murder. Now, there are limitations biblically on this command. And I hinted at that at the beginning. I don't believe the translation should be, you shall not kill. I think the translation is, you shall not murder. Human life is valuable, a very high value. But the value of human life is not the highest value in the universe. There's something higher than that. For example, the glory of God is higher than a human life. The word of God is higher than a human life. And if God commands you to kill, you must kill. It's, it's that simple. And uh, we can show this again and again in Scripture. First, let's talk about God. God himself is directly responsible for the death of every person that's ever died. Think about that. First of all, he put the human race under the death penalty. If you eat from that tree, you will die. So the death penalty is his own. Second of all, he executes the death penalty. He's the one that does it. Why? Because he could sustain life forever if he wanted to. He could move and keep people alive. But actually in Psalm 104, take a minute and look there. At Psalm 104, he says directly that he's responsible for the death of every person that's ever died. Psalm 104 is talking generally about God's provision for his created beings. And uh, he lists, uh, for example, in verse 21, Psalm 104, 21, he talks about lions roaring for their prey and seeking their food from God. Do you see that? Verse 21, Psalm 104, 21, lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. And then uh, the sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then man goes out to his work, to his labor until evening. So lions, God provides for lions in the, in the evening, at night. They're nocturnal. But then during the day, man goes out and does his work. That's important. That's important. Verse 24, how many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There's the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both large and small. There the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan, which you formed a frolic there. Now look at verse 27. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. What does the word all refer to? Every living creature, including man. These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Do you see that? This is God's doing. God takes breath away. It is God who gave it and it is his to take away. So let us not misunderstand and think that the value of human life is of infinite value, the highest in the universe. There is something higher and it is the glory of God and the word of God, the will of God. God directly killed the entire human race except for Noah and those on the ark with him. It wasn't, it wasn't an accident. God did it. God killed uh, those in Sodom and Gomorrah as an act of his judgment. And there's far greater slaughter yet to come. If you've read the book of Revelation, in which hundreds of millions of people are slaughtered at the command of God, and the angels are there saying, righteous you are, God, holy and true for doing this. They deserve it. 
And so, again, let's keep in mind that God himself is not against the taking away of human life. Secondly, God commands capital punishment throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis 9-6, which I already quoted, it said, listen to this carefully, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has he made man. Now, I think the image of God is not just concerning the victim. It's also concerning the judge who carries out the sentence. And so, therefore, the judge, in the image of God, in effect, stands in God's place and acts as the avenger of blood for the murderer. And so this is clearly commanded uh, in the law of Moses again and again. For example, in Deuteronomy 19, 11 through 13, just listen to this. It says, if a man hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, assaults him and kills him, and then flees to one of these cities, the elders of the town shall send for him, bring him back from the city, hand him over to the avenger of blood to die. Deuteronomy 19:13. show him no pity. That's a direct command from God to kill the murderer. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. Now, this week, ironically, I looked in the biblical recorder and there was a big half-page ad in our state Baptist paper specifically against capital punishment. It had a picture, I guess, of Jesus. I, I don't know what Jesus looks like, but I know what a picture that people think looks like Jesus looks like. So there's Jesus, and he's thinking thoughts. And I, I forget the exact quote, but it was something like this. An occasional miscarriage of justice is a small price we have to be willing to pay for human justice. So what is it saying? Can you imagine Jesus saying that? Occasionally we're going to be executing people who are innocent. And we have to be willing to pay that price. Since you cannot imagine Jesus saying that, then capital punishment must not be biblical. Do you see the logic? It doesn't make any sense to me. I want to deal with the occasional miscarriage of justice while not overturning the commands of God here. And it's not just in the Old Testament. It says very plainly in the New Testament, in Romans 13, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. Well, what's a sword for except for ending a life? Now, some people say that capital punishment is no deterrent. Have you ever heard that before? Do you believe that? I don't. But I know biblically it's not true. Many times in the book of Deuteronomy it says, you must purge the evil from Israel, then all Israel will hear and be afraid and never do such a heinous thing again. There it is. So you never need to wonder, as a biblical believer, is capital punishment a deterrent to further crimes. God said it is. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid. Also in Romans 13, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. It is a deterrent. Paul himself was willing to put his own life on the line for this. This is a new verse. I'd never thought of this one before in terms of capital punishment. It says, Acts, Acts 25:11. Paul, on trial for his life, says, now listen to this. If... However, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death. I do not refuse to die. That's a very important statement. He's not speaking in the abstract, is he? He's not speaking theoretically. Whose head is on the line? His own. He says, if I've done anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. 
But if these charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, then no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And he eventually went to Caesar. But do you see his attitude toward capital punishment? Willing to die if he had done anything deserving death. Not only concerning capital punishment, but concerning the military. God commands many times for the Israelites to slaughter their enemies and show no pity or no mercy. And in 1 Samuel 15, which I think you recently studied in Sunday school, King Saul lost his kingdom because he didn't kill Agag and spared some of the best of the flock. You remember that? And you remember how Samuel remedied the problem? Yeah, Agag was brought before Saul and Samuel, and this is what happened. It says in 1 Samuel 15:33, as your sword, he's speaking to Agag, as your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death, listen, before the Lord at Gilgal. It wasn't murder. It was killing, but it wasn't murder because he was carrying out God's direct command. He was told to do it. Certain godly men in Israel's history showed their zeal for God by killing evildoers right in the middle of the act. For example, Phineas took his spear and drove it through an Israelite who was committing adultery and stopped the plague. And God said, because Phineas has done this, I'm going to give him the priesthood and it's never going to get taken from him because he showed zeal for the honor and the glory of God. So clearly the command cannot be simply, you shall not kill. And I'll tell you what, almost every time there's capital punishment, there are some Christian folks out front with signs saying, it says, you shall not kill. Well, it's a mistranslation. It says, you shall not murder. And that's the way I think we should understand it. A final example of this is in Genesis 22. Some time later, God spoke to Abraham and tested him, saying, Abraham, here I am. He replied, then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Would Abraham have been committing murder if he had killed his son? No. Would he have disobeyed God if he had chosen not to do it? Yes. He had no choice. He had to kill him. Now, we know from the book of Hebrews, he, re- he reasoned that God would raise him from the dead because he was the child of promise after all. They said, all right, Lord, if you want to show your power over resurrection, do it. But I'm going to go ahead and kill him because you told me to. And so that's a, a clear uh, issue there where he had to obey him. Now, I've thought a lot about Abraham and Isaac. Suppose you had a neighbor who heard voices from God and God was telling him, kill your son. Wouldn't you report him to the authorities? I would. I think the whole thing's a problematic story, but God clearly commanded him. And he, but you know what I'm saying. A responsible citizen, wouldn't you make a phone call? Say, I'm worried about my neighbor. He's saying odd things. Okay, but God clearly communicated to Abraham that he should do it as a picture of the giving of Jesus Christ. And in the end, this is the beautiful truth, as I alluded to earlier. God used murder to save the world. Jesus had done nothing deserving death. And yet he was murdered. It says in Acts 3, 13 through 15, this is Peter's sermon. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. He's speaking now to the Jews. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. And then he goes on from there to preach the gospel to these murderers of the author of life. God used murder to save my soul and yours too. Isn't that a marvelous thing? And here's the thing. Let's go back to the origin of murder. Who was the original murderer? Was it not the devil himself? Now, I've often thought before, 
I hate to phrase it this way, but if you were the devil, what would you do? Here is the incarnate Son of God. He's in the world. You know who he is. And you hate him. Just as you've hated all human beings that have ever lived. But you hate this one more than anyone that's ever lived because he's so pure and holy and righteous. Every fiber of your being wants to kill him. Right? But yet there are these prophecies. And why is he here? And why would God make his son so vulnerable? You see. And so at one point you tempt through Peter, you tempt Jesus not to go to the cross. You remember that? Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block to me. So there's the devil tempting Jesus not to die on the cross. But by the time Judas takes that bread and Satan enters into him and he incites Judas to incite the Jews to kill Jesus, he's made up his mind. The murderer of the human race is going to kill Jesus. He's going to kill him. He wants to kill him. And in effect, God just basically gives the devil over to his own murderous nature. And in so doing, destroys his own kingdom. In effect, the devil committed suicide by killing Jesus. But he couldn't do anything else because he hated Jesus so much and he had to kill him. And so you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And so in the end, I get saved because the devil had to kill Jesus. I get saved because the human race is a bunch of murderers. I get saved from my own murderous nature, from my own anger, from my own sin nature, because of this marvelous salvation plan of God. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.